welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Coming to you from Trieste, Italy and Bath, England, each episode we discuss topical issues concerning Western Buddhism, with a bit of banter and occasional guests. You can join in the fun at our dedicated Facebook page and Twitter feed. Download episodes from SoundCloud and MixCloud. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, where today Stuart and I are getting engaged. No, not that type of engaged. We're not going to get married. I'm already married, been so for almost 10 years, and Stuart is currently dating a camel. <laughs> Did I get that right? No, you got that completely wrong. I think you've been drinking too much over Christmas. <laughs> That's right. It's Christmas episode, this one, which means we might be a little bit jolly. There might be high, sh- high, high shinks. What's that word? High jinks. High jinks. You have been drinking. Yeah. Probably not enough, though, actually. Anyway, welcome one and all to this uh, to this episode. It's been a while since we've got one of these out, Stuart. We've been pretty busy. Yeah, we have. I've been I've been on a certification, and, and life's just pulled me in a number of different unplanned directions. And yeah. I think the same is true with you as well, isn't it, Matthew? It has been very, very intense period. Uh, way too intense, actually. And I think... Though it's not just been that, has it? We struggled a little bit with this topic. It's been sort of motivating and demotivating, and, and really, starting and stopping. I personally found it really difficult to engage with. Oh, 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 oh. nice one! I like the way you slipped that in within the first minute. <laughs> anyway, let's get engaged uh, with the topic. Let's move on. So, uh, before we start, actually, I'd like to recommend a book because we talked about books when Tenzin came on. We made a few book recommendations. We made a few book recommendations with the academic Buddhism episode. And then Jayarava made a few recommendations as well. But this one might actually be the best of them all. Really? Why, why would that be the best of them all? Well, this is a book that my father sent me for Christmas. And it's called The Ladybird Book of Mindfulness. Sounds like a children's book. Yeah, it, it actually looks just like a children's book. In fact, if listeners are near a computer, I would suggest they go and look up the cover. Because the design of the whole thing is important. It's got lots of nice comments. These are books, actually. They're styled on books that were used to teach children in primary school in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. They may have still been around in the 80s when you and I were at primary school. Pretty sure they were. Pretty sure they, they were. were. Yeah, okay, along with, good. Along with a village with three corners. Wow, I don't remember that at all, but okay. Anyway, they're, they're based on popular topics. Uh, there's one about uh, getting drunk, which could be helpful. But the one on mindfulness, each page has a, a wonderful image from the 1940s or 50s, very, very English looking, and then a nice statement about mindfulness. So here's one that I quite like. It says, Clive likes to practice loving kindness meditation. This is when someone thinks of a friend and then sends them love. Clive finds this easier than bothering to meet his friends or lending them money. <laughs> That's kind of nice. It's very English. I love it. I've got another one here. Another one? Actually, that one's a little bit too uh, outrageous. Is it? Yeah, let me find you the one that yeah, I actually even posted. Though we're, even though we're both imperfect. Well, we don't want to go too far just yet, do we? This is the Christmas episode. Uh, this one's quite nice. Uh, and this actually relates to the topic today. Alison has been staring at this beautiful tree for five hours. She was meant to be in the office. Tomorrow, she will be fired. In this way, mindfulness will have solved her work-related stress problems. <laughs> <laughs> That's the spirit, Alison. Go for it. 
Yeah, she's uh, she's on the right track. She's taking positive, engaged action. Yeah. Thoughtful, mindful action. Very good. Very good. Anyway, so here we are. We were struggling with this topic, but we're on it. And today is the day we're going to go for it. Why don't we start by talking a bit about the history of engaged Buddhism? Have you got anything to say on that? I do. Yes, I do. The juxtaposition between those two areas, between being socially engaged and Buddhism, they they also could potentially appear antithetical or you know diametrically opposed, existing on two opposite ends of a spectrum. The question is, one of the questions you've put out, Matthew, is, is what is it, what about it is engaged, and what about it is Buddhist? One of the things I like to do is go to Wikipedia and look up these things. It says, Wikipedia, engaged Buddhism refers to Buddhists who are seeking ways to apply the insights from meditation practice and Dharma teachings to situations of social, political, environmental, and economic suffering and injustice, which in my mind means the insights, the realizations, and the effects and affects of practice, you take them out to meet the world. So essentially, it's a socially aware, non-violent movement, Matthew. All right. Are we talking about the personal experience that comes about for the individual? Are we talking about these people carrying forward Buddhist principles into the world? Because they could be different things, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, it could be that somebody does Buddhist practice and they say, actually, this is not for me. I'm going to actually go out in the world and, you know, go work in some sort of third world, poverty-stricken country and dedicate myself to, I don't know, helping them and give up Buddhism. So I think that could be a point that's worth exploring today is this relationship between Buddhism as ideology or Buddhism as a set of, of fixed principles and ideas and the individual trying to find some way to you know, help out or do something meaningful in their lives and therefore in the world. Yeah, sure. Sure, there's definitely a difference between those two questions and those two standpoints or um viewpoints but talking about history though when i when i asked you that I, I was thinking actually where did it all start because if you look at the history i mean there's there's actually not a very long history of engaged buddhism i mean it's a term that seems to have been coined by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh during the vietnam war so we could say it's a, it's, a, it's a concept that sort of was birthed before him as far as i can tell from a, a, something i read at least a couple of months back so i'm a little bit rusty on this he was inspired by uh, something called humanist or humanistic buddhism the Ch chinese humanistic buddhist reform movement right i'm not actually sure what they actually did but they were there were a couple of chaps called who we're going to we're going to butcher these names again uh, taizu and yin shun uh Han, for whatever whatever these guys did he was inspired by them but i think as a Buddhist monk, he was looking around, seeing the effects of the, Buddha, you know, the Vietnamese war and thinking, Jesus, you know, it's just not enough to meditate. I think there's certainly that that's a positive shift for Buddhism, because if you look throughout its history, it's never been a particularly revolutionary force as far as social justice and politics are concerned. Uh, anything that's really, you know, been a sort of stretch or push in the direction of activism has all been in the last century and to some degree in this one. And I'm thinking also about uh, there's a chap in India who basically set up a Buddhist movement to bring, you know, outcasts and the untouchables of uh, Hindu society. He converted them to Buddhism so that they would be free of their caste system. How effective that's been, I don't know. But again, that's a relatively recent development. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh put together a text called The 14 Precepts of Engaged Buddhism, which I think is quite noble. One of the things I'm concerned about, Stuart, and you'll tell me what you think, I'm a bit concerned that a lot of what's what basically is construed as engaged Buddhism is basically wishful thinking. When I look at some, 
Yeah. When I look at something like uh, David Loy, and I want to talk about David Loy, I think he's the most interesting contemporary character involved in engaged Buddhism. He's diagnosing the problem. I mean, his best texts, you know, they, they look at the three poisons, which we can talk about in a minute. They form diagnosis. And I think the diagnosis is quite interesting, especially if we go back to the definition you got from Wikipedia. But again, a lot of it, the solution ends up being very wishful. Um, I don't see how it could ever actually find real sort of actualized relevance in the political landscape that we're currently living through. Nice. Yeah, I, I've come to the same conclusion. One of the reasons I found it difficult to engage with this topic is because there doesn't appear to be much of an engaged Buddhism to speak of at all. And, and again, you know, Matthew, it's, it's me and you working it out and, and throwing ideas back and forth to kind of see where things are at. And, and I found it difficult to actually do the research for this because there didn't seem to be much to get my teeth into. And there are reasons that, that could be possible for this, and one of them being Buddhism's avoidance of social and political action, not only currently in the West, but also historically, because Buddhism, to survive, would have to ally itself with you know, royalty, with the emperor, with the higher social caste or upper echelons of society. So it's alignment with current corporatocracy and plutocratic ideals, and it would also appear that most Western Buddhists are distracted, self-absorbed, and actively disengaged like many modern Westerners are. Yeah, and I think that's that's another key point that, again, I came to quite quickly. When you start looking at engaged Buddhism and you start looking at disengaged Buddhism, we see that this is really just a reflection or often of, of sort of the middle class conundrum in the sense that, um, you know, the comfortable middle class is comfortable and Buddhism has generally served as a means for sort of coming to some sort of greater sense of peace or well-being with that comfort or as a replacement for Christianity as some sort of, you know, feel-good um, social practice, but social practice not in the sense of act activism, but as in participation in society. And I think I think the wider disengagement we see from people politically is something we see in Buddhism too. And the, the first thought that came to my mind really was, well, what about disengaged Buddhism? How much does Buddhism really permit people to disengage? Because as you just described, I mean, let's, let's face it, the vast majority of meditation practice does seem to be relatively narcissistic and self-serving. Did you mean, um, did you mean engage or disengage there? Disengage. You meant disengage. How how does Buddhism allow us to disengage? Yeah, that's my other question. In what way? I don't. I'm not clear on that. How do you mean? You mentioned plutocracy and the fact that mindfulness is allied quite quickly with capitalism and with various, you know, capitalistic interests. You know, and whether it's corporate co-opting mindfulness practice to let's use some nice language here, subjugate workers so they feel more comfortable being more efficient, or whether it's um, pacifying people. I think I think mindfulness is often has the potential for pacifying people so they're less reactive. Now, the light side, yeah, you know, let's be less reactive emotionally, but also let's pacify the rougher edges of our, you know, outrage and frustration and anger with, you know, what passes as the status quo as, as actually that comfortable middle class is becoming less and less comfortable and is feeling the pinch, right? I mean, yeah. I'm feeling it. Are you feeling it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I am, yeah. Yeah, and to be honest, I mean... I mean, I haven't used meditation for this end for, for many years, but I certainly have in the past. I'll be the first one to admit that. Certainly Buddhism has helped me to, you know, get get through or get over uncomfortable feelings. But, you know, coming back to what you said about there being a lack of resources, the same has been true for a critique of engaged Buddhism. 
And one person who has been, I would say, constructively but critically uh, engaged with, with analyzing the failings of engaged Buddhism has been a chap called uh, Ken Nab. He wrote two texts which I came across by chance. The first one is called Invading the Transformation of Reality, Engage Buddhism at an Impasse. And the other one, if I'm not mistaken, is Strong, Lesson for, Strong Lessons for Engaged Buddhists. These were actually written back in the 90s, but the, the, the basic premises of both of these texts are still fairly relevant. Uh, Strong Lessons for Engaged Buddhists actually started out as a pamphlet that he handed out at various meetings when Thich Nhat Hanh was in the States. And it's quite nice because he's actually mirroring many of the criticisms of Buddhism in general that the non-speculative Buddhists have made, but he does so in a relatively constructive uh, format. But he basically uh, reaffirms, or I should actually say he preceded the uh, speculative non-Buddhism critique because it was earlier. He basically says that there's a problem with Buddhism or Buddhist um, apoliticism and this general disengagement from the political world, and the fact that engaged Buddhism, although, let's say, worthy of praise in the sense that when it is done well, it has actually provided solutions to small-scale problems at the local level. For example, soup kitchens, what's his name, Bernie Glassman, he, he's another proponent of engaged Buddhism. He's done some great work in New York setting up, uh, I think it's a bakery for the homeless. Great, the Greystone Foundation that set up right, the bakery right. workers in New York, yeah. You know, considering how useless so, so many of us are actually doing anything practical, I mean, you, know, you have to respect the fact that he's put that together and he's actually had immensely positive uh, results and impact on the life of many destitute and lost souls, you know? Hmm. That's it's, great. But it's, a successful, it's a successful thriving business. There are people doing these things, and they're great actions, and I think they mirror the Christian tradition and the Islamic traditions, which have a you know a much longer tradition of socially engaged action, spe- specifically towards the poor, the homeless, and people like refugees and so forth. But he makes the point that Buddhism fails to address the not just the symptoms but the cause, and I think this is where we see disengagement from the middle classes in general, but we also see that within Buddhist circles, this disengagement from a genuine, well-thought-out, researched analysis of why it is that we see such immense forms of inequality. And at that point, we end up getting to a critique of capitalism. And, you know, we're going to talk about America in particular, the you know neoconservative sort of agenda, uh, which, all, of course, has also impacted heavily the UK, right? Yeah, I've got a few things that I've got a few things to say on that. So um, Bernie Glassman, as as many people know, is probably a student is probably probably a student of Taizan Mezumi Roshi. But yeah, he's definitely a student of Taizan Mezumi Roshi. Um, he runs the Zen Peacekeepers, and and they're at zenpeacekeepers.org. He's run the Greystone Bakery and the Greystone Foundations in Yonkers, New York, which we've just discussed as a successful business employing homeless people. I believe, although I'm not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure that they've done soup kitchens for the homeless. And they also run street retreats for the middle class slash upper class, which we can come back to if we need to, Matthew. The other organization that I was able to dig out was the the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which is the BuddhistPeaceFellowship.org, run by or set up by Robert Baker Atkin. Uh, I don't believe he's the current head of the organization at this point in time, but the website says that they're active in eco-justice, economics, military, race, very ambiguous, um, prisons and other areas. I had a quick look around, but it appears to be somewhat watered down. Both of these, both these guys, Robert Baker Atkin and Bernie Glassman, come out of a Zen tradition. So there, there appears to be, as we just discussed, there appears to be a chasm between practice and social engagement. 
Engagement remains, in, in terms of my experience of working at a Dharma Center of Dutch and Charling in France, engagement for my whole time there remained undiscussed as a viable approach within talks, courses, and retreats. Because it was a Shambhala course, the foundational mythos of the Shambhala warrior, which I would see as in being able to be engaged within martial arts, being able to be engaged within various elements of society, you know, going out and getting jobs, getting into relationships, meeting friends, you know, going out and doing stuff. It's, it's an active descriptor, a Shambhala warrior. And as well as getting involved within social engagement, I, I haven't seen an example where they are. And at present, it seems to be very currently socially unengaged. In fact, the mainstay of participants, and this is probably the case at the, without, I'm not picking on anybody, this is just from my experience, but the mainstay of participants were more interested in snuggling up into their retreats, Matthew. So it's, you know, I think this is, this is more endemic of current trend rather than being specific to, to that particular center. I think what you're describing as well is you're picking up on a theme which is the self-serving aspect or nature of contemporary Western Buddhism, which is primarily therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's one thing that's worth mentioning. Sorry to interrupt you. You're not. Go for it. One, I think one of the problems that we fail to um, articulate sometimes is the fact that if, if we look at the, you know, the, the, the economic times that we live in and the, the political and capitalistic systems, they're, they, they're traumatic, traumatic systems. They cause immense insecurity, doubt, you know, instability, uh, stress and so forth. It's no surprise that meditation is on the light side that say a positive means for addressing those or managing them more effectively. And on the on the dark side, it can become a means for becoming more complacent or let's say switching off from understanding or um, criti- you know, criticizing or thinking critically about this traumatic force which is this economic system, which is just, you know, plowing everything before it, you know, for the sake of short term growth. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I've had quite strong feelings about this sort of narcissistic therapeutic approach to Buddhist practice. But I don't know. I don't know how right that is. On the one side, it's understandable, you know, and it, when, when you and I are in a difficult patch, I mean, let's be honest, I think we still use meditation to help us out. <laughs> right. Oh, for real. For yeah, therapeutic yeah. It's, purposes, it's really, you know what not, I mean? Not, not therapeutically, but it's. It can be really good to balance. It can be really good to keep you on balance with the challenges of daily life, and if if and it can become that if you're not careful with it. You know, it can it can become the fact that oh, I'm just you know, I'll just go and I'll just go and sit for a while, you know, and then I'll be okay. And yeah. and but what happens after that? Is, is do you use that space to move forwards? Do you use that space to deal with the issues that you've got and then evolve and grow past them? Or do you use that as an excuse and then it just becomes somewhere that you run away to? I think that's the difference between the type of practitioner we're talking about now. Because we're talking about a certain type of we're talking about a certain type of attitude. And that can be done the attitude of running away, the attitude of not wanting to engage, and the attitude of wanting to not critically think. That can be done with all forms of you know, it doesn't have to be meditation, that can be done with everything. Yeah. I think one of the points that continues to be in the shadows of in all these discussions we have is this difference between ideals and their realization in the world. So I think that that's what gets frustrating sometimes for me is that Buddhism promises a lot. And yet it, the actualization or the realization of its promises is is empty, you know, <laughs> empty. Not the, it's right, vacuous. not the right type of empty. 
Yeah, not the right type of empty, is it? <laughs> not luminous. Unsubstantial. Unsubstantial. <laughs> Completely empty and useless in the sense of useless. Useless is a better <laughs> word. <laughs> so, and I, I think that's the risk of engaged Buddhism. When you're talking about Bernie Glassman, he, he seems like a fantastic chap, but you know, when I looked into his street retreats, my first thought is, well, a, a poor person would never go on one of those retreats, right? That's right. They, they've been living that dream for a long time. <laughs> living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon the pun. <laughs> Pardon the pun. This is, for me, this is not endemic of Shambhala. This is endemic of Buddhism, of, of not going far enough to engage. So I've put down the Sakyong shows what shows off one of his magically wonky one-sided quotes. My friend um, Chantel sent me this. It says, right now the world needs steady people who can show up for the present moment. And that's fantastic. Yes, yes. And I remember when I said this to you, Matthew, and you went, and, you know, where's the rest of it? There isn't any rest of it. You know, that is, it's, it's one-sided. What happens, where, where's, the, where's the action? Where's the engagement? Ken Nab showing off the limits of, on socially engaged Buddhism. He says, Nat Han may be a wonderful person. His writings may be inspiring and illuminating in certain respects, but his social analysis is naive. If he seems slightly radical, this is only in contrast to the even greater political naivete of most other Buddhists. Many of his admirers will be shocked, perhaps even angered, at the idea that anyone could have the nerve to criticise such a saintly person, and will try to dismiss this leaflet by as pigeonholing it as some bizarre sort of angry leftist ideology, in quotes, and by assuming, in brackets, incorrectly, that it was written by someone with no experience of Buddhist meditation. And so, based upon that, I think that's that's very, very correct, very insightful. Written in 93, I think it still stands on its own two feet as accurate. And so, with regards to that quote, and, and again, Ken saying something interesting, where does this leave socially engaged Buddhism? And he hides, highlights the situation as he sees it. He says, the engaged, this isn't a complete quote, but he says, the engaged Buddhists have concluded that all confrontational, in quotes, tactics, and again, in quotation marks, divisive theories are misguided and irrelevant. Since this attitude amounts to ignoring virtually the entire history of social struggles, many richly suggestive experiences remain a closed book to them. And they are left with nothing but to share, again in quotations, with each other the most innocuous, new-agey platitudes and try to drum up interest in the most timid... <laughs> timid. Timid. Most tepid, lowest common denominator actions. And what I can draw from that is it sounds like Buddhists as a whole could potentially be struggling from a lack of willingness to draw expertise from other areas and arenas, which we've covered before, and potentially suffering from a fear of violence or confrontation. So it's the principle again of Buddhist sufficiency, in the sense that um, it's a closed circle, yes, and people will only refer to it in order to find their inspiration, their ideas, and and, and their praxis as a self as a self referential system. That's the as a, exactly, loop. yeah, as exactly. Said. This is the problem with ideology, right, which is a theme that we've come up again and again. And it's, it's a buzzword, in a sense, for this podcast, but it's so, it encapsulates so many core ideals and it captures so much of what's problematic about a system of ideas, of beliefs and practice, which is closed and blind to its own, let's say, limitations, you know, self-identification. So as you said, I mean, the solution, in a sense, in order for engaged Buddhism to become more relevant, it has to start engaging with the wider world. It's interesting. I mean, we see a couple of comments coming up from people like the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama has claimed that he's a Marxist. And he's actually recently spoke out and said uh, Buddhists actually do need to start engaging. 
and we actually need to start uh, building traditions in the same way that Christianity has. And I, that's, a, that's certainly a positive thing. Whether that's going to have any action, I don't know. I think that's, that could potentially be older than that. He might have said that quite a while back. Yeah, well, he said he was a Marxist a while back, but I think uh, at a conference this year, it might have been in London or New York, he, okay, mate. Yep. he restated this, this, this appeal, let's Drum say, yep. to, to, to invite people to engage with the world. And I think that's a positive, certainly a positive step. But I think, again, the, the, the problem with political engagement is a middle class problem. It's a lower class problem and an upper middle class problem. And I think it's a problem that we struggle with because if you look at what's available to us in the current political systems in the West, you know, which most of them are, let's say, a two party option Uh, here in Italy is a bit different. But at the end of the day, you more or less end up with the left or the right wing, you know, as you know, the Democrats and the conservatives. I think Buddhism does have the potential to help. But before, again, we get a little bit too vague. Let's talk about how Buddhism could actually be used to help. Let's come back to David Lloyd's idea of the three poisons sure. as diagnosis. Let's see what we think about that. So I'm going, to, I'm going to mention a couple of things from a text of his, What's Buddhist About Socially Engaged Buddhism. It's quite long, but it's, it's worth a read. And I think it's one of the best texts he's put together. Um, he asked the same question, actually. So it's quite nice to, uh, to find that he was asking this one. Is there anything specific uh, about the type of social engagement that Buddhism encourages? And he says no. So well done. Well done, Dave. He, make, he brings up this point that there are so many social problems that we can't actually address them all. So I think ideally what we should all be doing is saying, what can I do in my immediate vicinity? And how can I uh, think about more clearly, critically and creatively, the wider uh, social problems, the, the history and let's say the foundation or the ideological basis for the sorts of discrimination and so forth that I see around me? And how could I perhaps educate myself at the least and try and contribute to whichever groups are starting to do good work at this time. So his idea is that there are three poisons. This is where he basically tries to take something from Buddhism and adapt it to a modern understanding of the situation we're in economically, politically and environmentally. And he talks about institutionalized forms, three of them. He talks about institutionalized greed, institutionalized ill will, and institutionalized delusion, although I think I prefer the word ignorance, actually. These institutions, these um, corporations or institutions or whatever, he says they've taken on a, a will of their own, regardless of the people who happen to be operating within them. So it takes they take on their own ethos or life force, and, and they, the institution becomes almost alive, in a sense. Yeah. And I think he's right. And I think that's a good counterpoint to the conspiracy theories that you can find all over the Internet, which often hold this idea that there's a small cabal of evil wizards hiding out somewhere controlling the strings. And I think he's actually very close to some of the critique that we see from uh, Ken and from the non-speculative Buddhist guys. That is to say that the individual is no longer the center of the world of suffering in this case, but it's the collective self, or in a sense, it's the ideology or the collective sense of self and the collective symbols that we use to identify ourselves and give value and direction and meaning to our lives. And he, he coined, maybe, maybe he coined this awful term. He goes from the ego to the we go. Yeah, I re- he, lost me when I, he lost me when he got to that. That, 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 that word's shit, let's be honest. <laughs> It sounds like some three-wheel Japanese we love electronic you, David. car. David, you're brilliant. You were awesome on the Buddhist Geeks, but come on, you need a better you need a better word than we go. Where are I, we going to go? 
Stuart, the we go, where are we going to go? <laughs> the point he makes is good, though, and I think it's right. And I think he's possibly one of the few people out there that has actually generally done what engaged Buddhism is, as you stated at the beginning of this, uh, this talk today. He's actually taken Buddhist teachings, he's applied them to the contemporary world, and he's more or less managed to identify the fact that the problem is bigger than the individual. One of the facets of mindfulness is that it tends to, to make the individual responsible for their suffering. Uh, it brings everything back to you. So you are responsible for the stress and the tension and so forth that you get from a system which treats us like, you know, objects and mechanisms in a machine. Now, this is quite interesting, again, because it brings up the question of victimhood. There's a problem here. In a sense, we are victims. And at the same time, as soon as you identify as a victim and you hold that out there, you lose your power to make much in the way of change. And I think that's problematic. That's really interesting. If I think about, you know, you know, I do coaching and I think one of the primary, let's say, uh, directions you have to get somebody to go in or you actually have to support somebody to take is to accept responsibility for their situation, but also to accept the fact that they can create change. And it's weird because, you know, if, if you put yourself in the role of victimhood, you do lose power. It's, that's one of those wonderful dichotomies we can see at play here. There's a need to recognize that there is this this system that treats all of us as nothing, as just, you know, just, a, just a, a cog in a machine. And at the same time, we have to find that autonomy that, say, within ourselves and that clarity and that inner strength and stability in order to step up and engage with our lives. And hopefully, once we get good enough at that, start engaging with how can I help? You know, how can I contribute? I think that's, that's really good. I, I like that a lot. That's, that's very true. Because you can work on yourself to, to the nth degree, and it's not going to solve the world's problems. You could get enlightened; it's not going to solve a goddamn thing. The only thing that it's going to solve is going to solve how you deal with it. Everything's not going to envelop in light and suddenly go, ah, you know, that's just not going to happen. That doesn't just a complete no. Let's get real. Let's get physical about this and deal with the fact that maybe you that might happen. You might kind of be sat on a mountaintop and kind of, oh my god, everything's one. But then, what are you going to do? Well, Sit on a mountain and everything becomes one. Yes. You new age hippie. Well, how might happen? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get back to the body, the body. Well, yeah. That but, wonderful but at the body. Same, but at the same point, how does, that, how does that insight, how does that level of insight lead you to make a difference? And I, I think this is interesting now because this is, this is kind of in a way, this is as far as I've gone. I'm starting to realize that to make a difference in the world, you need to help people. I think that's really relevant, but then I think there's an edge to that as well. There's a further edge to that once you start to engage, and I don't think Buddhism or even many people have really even gone past this edge. You can help people as much as you want, but at a certain point, we have to engage with the system. We have to engage with these corporations. We have to engage with these with laws without going conspiracist, without going leftist. We have to engage with the Atlantic trade laws that have been put out. We have to engage with how refugees get treated. We have to engage with why... ISIS exists as an entity and we have to engage and we have to educate and we have to become aware of why and then we have to start stepping into that space and I don't think people are I think people are scared to and I think Buddhism as a whole once it starts to deal with how to help people it doesn't go past that very much yeah and I think it's fair to accept that Buddhism wasn't created for that purpose I think possibly I agree, sometimes, I yeah, I think possibly sometimes people get confused, especially if they come from Tibetan Buddhism with these, you know, these very abstract notions where you pray 
for everybody where you do practices like you know giving and taking my tongue or sending and receiving is so powerful now matthew it will say it's actually going to make a difference right exactly yeah and it's funny actually if we if we uh start talking about how meditation practice can save we could actually start talk about Eckhart Tolle if we're going to cover Eckhart Tolle can we also cover Oprah Winfrey please this is actually quite a nice way to connect to uh the interviewee we will have Sean Bartone, and he, his surname's Italian, I don't know how he pronounces it, but it, it is Italian, and it should be Bartone. There was an article written about Eckhart Tolle by a person who will appear in the credits, because I can't remember the bloody name. But he, she, basically made an extremely nice critique of Eckhart Tolle and his wishful New Age thinking. And he basically breaks down all of the, the suggestions that Eckhart Tolle makes. And he comes out with these ideas, basically, if you meditate and if you save yourself, you will save the world bollocks that's the right word yes i think buddhism sometimes suffers from a similar new age disease of you know self-serving narcissistic nonsense meditation will not save the world you know sending and receiving giving and taking will not um we are empathic creatures and we do feel each other and i think on a, a local level or an immediate level i think such practices can actually change, uh, you know, the emotional sort of field, mm-hmm. uh, relationship dynamics. And I think that's very positive. Yeah, yeah, I think you've got a point there. If we were to stretch our imagination, we might say, okay, to some degree, such practices could somehow feed something positive into the shared empathic field of interbeing. But at the end of the day, as you and I know, what, what counts at the end of the day is how capable we are of, of, of acting and being and participating and are getting on board when you know our number is called or when a social movement or you know a campaign is unfolding and people need to show up physically and you know make a statement talking about the occupy wall street there were quite a few buddhists who got involved with that in new york for example ethan nickturn who was who's a member of the shambhala tribe if you don't mind me calling it that that you were part of for a period he was very very active in the occupy wall street movement he also donated quite a large sum of money to uh, obama to get re-elected and i think it seems to me that it's 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 an approach that possibly addressed the symptoms than the cause i mean if we look at obama for example unfortunately he's carried on many of the policies of his you know idiotic predecessor bombing the shit out of you know third world refugees and innocent muslims in the middle east and so forth australian whistleblowers Mis- yeah that's the big one because he made a you know a, a pledge no, to not do so won't. oh yeah we will yeah guantanamo bay stayed open you know and, and i i'd like to put in i'd like to put in a word because i've done I, what i did find overwhelmingly is what I did find on the other side of the argument, on the other side of the equation, is is people like um, Sam Harris on the Joe Rogan show, Abby Martin on the Joe Rogan show, Abby Martin, who I believe came out of the Occupy Oakland movement, started working for RT, Russia Today, did a wonderful job on, on breaking the set, and did a whole load of, she's doing something called The Empire Files, which I found to be truly educational and i'm i've got no drum to beat there i could go on a lot about that i won't it's not the time or the place but we'll put those in the show notes in case people feel like getting onto that stuff but you you mentioned sean sean bartone or sean barton as i would call him because i'm not italian and i haven't spent much time in italy matthew but he said a wonderful thing on our cults episode you might want to ask him when he comes on the show for the next interview but he said some of the insights that i had on the cults material on his engaged site he said that 
he had the same experience with the Shambhala community that I had. And he's written that on his blog. So I'm not just making that up. You've, co- you've managed to bring the discussion back to Shambhala. <laughs> I have an axe and it's grinding. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're, we're going to have to talk about this. <laughs> All right. So let's come back to David Law in his text. He says that um, the third poison, institutionalized delusion or ignorance, helps us to see that modern life in all developed nations is organized in a way that works to conceal the dukkha it causes. Now, I think he's spot on, and I think that explains why it's so difficult often for people to understand the the deeper or more foundational causes for the sorts of suffering we see widespread within modern society. And I think he, you know, he brings up a point that by now should be common knowledge that, it, you know, modern life encourages people to live in a self-enclosed cocoon of hedonistic consumption. And I think that's the dark side of meditation practice that we discussed earlier. On the other side, I think we could actually say something of, well, potentially of usage. Well, if we think about it, meditation can be critiqued for providing a means for people to desensitize themselves or to place themselves in that cocoon of self-serving interest, which again is not just a self-serving cocoon of interest, it's also a cocoon that allows a person to find some sort of refuge from the intensity of modern life, which can be extremely uncomfortable and frustrating. Absolutely, it can be frustrating. And, And that's interesting, Matthew, because what I see is Trump Rinpoche used to talk about the cocoon of coming out of the cocoon. Where in actuality, what you're saying here is that it can actually be used to hide and it can actually be used to actively disengage and create an illusion of doing something when actually not doing much. Yeah. But again, the problem I would suggest is not the fact that people do this, which I think is quite a natural instinct, because we are we are fragile feeling creatures, right? We are emotional. I think it, the problem becomes when it when it becomes institutionalized within Buddhist circles, and when they kid themselves that they're doing something else. Well, just, just as an aside, Patrick Jennings and Matthew Steingoss are the non-Buddhist. They actually wrote quite a, quite a critical piece against David Lloyd. It was, it was actually written by Matthew Steingoss. And then there's, a, there's an exchange between the two of them in the comments section that follow. That the text is, in their typical polemic style, David Lloyd, just another bankrupt ex-Buddhist. And Steingast wrote it in reaction to a text that David Lloyd wrote called The Corner for the Last Believer at the Huffington Post. Mm-hmm. You know, he uses this basically to, to make his claim of, of Lloyd, which I think is quite unfair. The text that he read does seem to be pretty lousy. But I think if he'd read the text that you and I read um, about the three poisons, that he may have had a different response. It's hard to say. But what's interesting is not necessarily his sort of rant but rather the exchange that takes place between him and Patrick afterwards. And they make a couple of points which I want to share, and I want to make a couple of suggestions. So Patrick points out that uh, David Lloyd describes the neoliberal ideology, uh, which is good, he, he expresses. Within the context of the article, he's talking about narratives and stories and the loss of meaning. So Patrick makes this point, which I think is good. He says, once the problem of capitalism is internalized as a problem of the motivations of individuals, which is what I mentioned before about the fact that, you know, often capitalism and Buddhism, when they work together, they basically make the individual responsible for the, their, their problems and the ills of the world. He says, at that point, the fetish of meditation becomes the solution to all problems, personal and collective. Well, that's, that's, that's currently the case. 
Yeah, right. Absolutely. But I mean, that's the sort of stuff we see in the sort of bullshit rhetoric of the New Agers and people like Eckhart Tolle. Now, as Steingast then points out afterwards, and I really, I think you said a great thing here. You said it very nicely. Capitalism is a kind of revolutionary force which is able to transform every kind of event against it into an integral and surplus surplus value generating part of its own structure. That's that's pretty that's quite profound actually. And I think it's interesting because at this point we can see how although meditation does often get co-opted into you know this this capitalistic world of making people more comfortable in their oppression, we could also possibly suggest that actually Buddhist practice could actually be used to provide the means for individuals to be more effective in their engagement in activism. I, you know, I grew up in a family that was very, very politically active. My father was extremely left-wing, took me on protests when I was very young in London against the poll tax and Margaret Thatcher. What, what I noticed even when I was quite young was the burnout rate. Um, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult politically, but it's much more difficult environmentally. Um, you know, my mother, who's a vegan and is, you know, very active as well in the world of animal rights and so forth. You know, you, you see how people, you know, are incredibly emotionally scarred by looking at the world more realistically and opening to it. There is the possibility that meditation can be utilized to make individuals and groups more emotionally robust and allow them to maintain, let's say, their sanity and some degree of emotional well-being and find the strength to stand up again and again in spite of the traumas, you know, wounding nature of actually looking at how we treat animals, how we treat the environment, how we treat each other, how we treat individuals and children, slave labor and so forth. You know, meditation could provide the means to actually help activists and those actively working in some way politically or socially and environmentally to be more effective. And I think at that point, there could be an interesting discussion to be had. I agree. Buddhist Buddhist practice, by its very definition, for me, when I was starting to engage with it, it's an internal revolution, really. If you if you look at meditation practice outside of the frame of just mindfulness, outside of that frame, what are you doing? What are you doing when you sit down to look at what's going on inside? How deep does that go? How far can you go with that? What implications does that have on a mental, emotional, spiritual, physical level? How far does that How far does that go? What are the limits to that? Are there limits? Do we know the answers to these questions? Anyone? <laughs> Without are, you ask, are you asking for help? help? Is there <laughs> any answers? <laughs> but that's that's what it is, right? It's um it's it's a revolutionary practice, internally revolutionary. It has the potential to change who you are at the very deepest foundations of what you are. If that's the narrative of the group that you're working with, the teacher you're working with, or your own personal ethic that you bring to practice and i think that again that's the problem we come back with around full circle again here which is the fact that too many groups whether it's shambhala or others you know are depoliticized and are disengaged and therefore practice never goes in that direction it only ever deals with the individual and their own responsibility for their own suffering through discourse of karma and rebirth and so forth but I would also argue on those on that on that basis, I would argue the fact that because it's depoliticized, because it's disengaged, that in itself affects the practice in a two-way cutting action, in the sense that that's not there, therefore the practice doesn't go there. The two the two areas are not mutually exclusive. They shouldn't be. Well, they're not. 
if, if you take the question of, if you take the four noble truths or the four truths seriously, what is suffering, right? What, what is it caused by? What's the path? What's the end of it? And so forth. Then at that point, you have to bridge your sense of individual practice to the collective sense of practice and suffering and the creation of a new ideology or the strengthening or the sustaining of a pre-existing ideology that actually would more effectively reduce suffering in the world and reduce, I would hope, specifically ignorance. Because, you know, there's one thing I understand from my own long-term engagement in, in Tibetan Buddhism, the cause of suffering is ignorance at the end of the day. Exactly. And there's a point on that in the podcast layout is that should Buddhists be expected to engage? And at the very least, if they can't be expected to engage, at the very least, they should be expected to be self-informed and aware. Yeah. At the very least, to be able to have discussions, dialogues, sharing of information with people on courses, lectures, workshops, retreats. This information should be included within that. It's, it's, it's impossible to avoid, and society is not engaging with it for the vast majority, and Buddhism also is following exactly the same trend. And where do we want to end up? I mean, that's what it comes down to in my mind. Where do we want to end up? And I think it's a case of articulating a better discourse of the collective self and not just the individual self. I don't know what it's been like for you in your own practice, Stuart, but relatively soon after, you know, I've, I've gone further with meditation practice in my 20s, when you, when you come up against your own suffering, when you come up with your own individual patterns, historical patterns and then your own historical narrative of self as soon as you come up against that and you touch it deeply if we want to use a Thich Nhat Hanh concept that he uses a lot touch deeply what you find once you touch deeply your own patterns of selfing and your own patterns of suffering is you find it's not you it's us that us, unfortunately, is traditionally, traditionally in the sense of the last 30, 40 years of Buddhism and the New Age world, has been about a jump from the individual to the universe. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about recently. Jumping from the individual to the universe. Everything in between is missing. And everything in between is much more interesting and much more relevant. Because really our, our individual patterns of self are our collective patterns of self. Which doesn't mean that I am everything and everything that I am is everything else and therefore I am the center of the bloody universe. No, it's actually a process of depersonalization. That is, my own suffering, fuck, is just another reflection of the nature of suffering as it coexists at this time within all the other people I'm looking at. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the, the shamanic work that you've done and that you've described to me in the past, Matthew, I think that reflects this quite nicely in the sense that often the suffering that the, that the individual is going through is often a cause of the societal suffering because that's what they pick up as they grow up. That's what kids pick up as they grow up. And therefore, it's not only is it an individual level suffering, it's also a collective level of suffering as well. Yeah. And that's the point where it gets to, not what, what am I going to do for myself, but what am I going to do for us? And at that point, um, I think Buddhism, like most forms of spirituality, fails to elaborate a discourse that's meaningful you know, beyond this jump between the individual and the universe. Because the problem is when you universalize things, it becomes an, an abstraction. It becomes a fantasy and it becomes a dream. And it brings us back to the point I made at the beginning where it's often wishful thinking. If you push everything from the individual to the universal, then there's no need to act. 
because actually in making it universal, then I can act on myself and somehow that will manifest, you know, in the micro macrocosm dynamic. Instead, what it is actually is we are in this together. We are finite. Our lives are limited and we actually have to act on the material world that we're, we're, we're in. But before, you know, we, we start repeating ourselves, I want to share one more thing I actually got off of uh, one of Sean's articles, which he wrote on neoliberal Buddhism. But my view is this, you know, there are three types of meditation, right? If we break everything down and make it really, really simple, there's focusing the mind, okay, or that is training attention, and there is uh, opening or expanding the mind or awareness, which I've often defined as developing intimacy, and then there's contemplation. So contemplation is the active reflection on a thought, an idea, in Zen Buddhism, which has been, as you mentioned rightly, uh, the, the main Buddhist uh, presence within engaged Buddhism, there's this notion of the koans. And the idea is that, you know, you, 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 you gain a clear mind, you develop the right relationship with, with immediate experience, and then you seed within that space a core concept or idea or a phrase that somehow opens you to your own experience. But when I first started Buddhism, I started with the Galupas, and the Galupas use a lot of contemplative meditation practice. You know, it annoyed the hell out of me when I first did it. But with time, I've learned to appreciate it more by finding my own phrases or by receiving phrases from a teacher I work with. I think actually engaged Buddhists or all, all Buddhists, but specifically engaged Buddhists could try this. They could take a concept that's taken from sociology or history or political studies or from Marxism or from any other prominent philosopher who's basically engaged in ethics and economics and political ethics and apply it to the world and sit with one of those phrases. So I've got one for you that Sean includes. I'm just going to read a few extracts from it. The, the quote is this, the neoliberal self is characterized by depoliticization, the rejection of institutions of social welfare and the stigmatization of individual misfortune. Now, that's just the first part. But I mean, you, you know, you could meditate for half an hour and sit with that phrase. That's going to wake you up. Could you run that back again? Yeah, the neoliberal self is characterized by depoliticization, the rejection of institutions of social welfare, and the stigmatization of individual misfortune. You getting that? Yeah, I'd need to run through that a few times to actually pick that apart. There's a lot in that. There is, yeah. I'll read on. Features that mark self-help discourses as neoliberal include the centrality of the self in the attainment of well-being practices of self-realization and self-control, and the sale of practices and ideas of self in the marketplace. That's cool. Yeah. Now... I mean, what he's written is cool. By, he didn't write it. This was actually written by, I found the name now, Larissa Honey. And again, the link will be in the show notes. So I'm going to read the last bit as well. Strategically framed in terms of freedom, autonomy, and choice, neoliberal modes of governing utilize technologies of the self, such as self-help practices, to produce new subjects who view themselves as responsible for their own social welfare, social welfare and well-being, and cons consequently are induced not only to govern themselves according to market pr principles of discipline, efficiency and competitiveness, but to feel empowered in the process. Now, I would suggest, you know, you could unpack that. You could break it down into bite-sized pieces, meditate and then sit with it. Sit with that. 
you know? That's powerful stuff. We haven't talked about the environment much, and we don't want to go on for too long, but I mean, but you know what we just did? You know what we just did? What did we just do? We bashed something out there. What was it? <laughs> yeah, we managed to produce some practical suggestions for how people could utilize meditation practice to wake up to the collective nature of suffering and their role and participation in it. That's not bad. We did something useful. Hey. That's a first. That is not a first at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few things that I want to, that I'd like to bash out as well, actually. Let's just make this what it is. You've said, does this mirror similar practices in Christianity? My understanding of Christianity is nowhere near deep enough to be able to form any kind of meaningful critique. So my understanding is that Christianity works off of a different starting point rather than the reduction of suffering, which Buddhism clearly starts from. So I would say... Does it mirror similar practices in Christianity? I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there are other people out there, there are experts out there that would argue that point and would argue it very clearly and, and concisely, but my, my knowledge on the subject doesn't reach that level. However, with regards to a stark reflection and contribution to the subject, is that with regards to the Black Liberation Movement and the social action leaders of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, we have some very good examples of, of what could happen if we really followed this through. And of course, Malcolm X is a Muslim, was a Muslim. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian minister. And both were highly effective, and to my knowledge, there is not, has not been, to current date, a Western Buddhist equivalent. There just isn't. Buddhism isn't engaging on that level. Well, they're different narratives, aren't they? If you look at Christianity, there's the narrative of doing God's work, which is saving people from themselves. Buddhism doesn't have that narrative. Buddhism places the individual... At cause, which is why somebody probably like Patrick Jennings or Matthias Steingas would argue that it's the perfect bedmate of capitalism because it highlights the the, you know, the the individual principle of being at cause of being the cause of your own suffering and suffering the consequences of your own actions. But the risk is that Buddhism does continue to become that, at least in any meaningful sense, through the mindfulness movement. Christianity doesn't do that. But then, of course, Christianity has provided the ideological basis for runaway capitalism that we see. I mean, if you look at the, the economic system we have, I mean, in a sense, it is based on this notion of progress. It has this division between form and spirit. So although Buddhism is problematic, it does put forward this notion of non-dualism. The idea of non-dualism actually is there's not salvation. There's not a moving upwards towards the light. There's actually just being embedded in an organic world. And I think part of the effort of alternative political systems um, is to construe a new idea of the individual and of society and of our place in the world. And I think what we see now is that more than ever, we need to leave, leave behind this Judeo-Islamic Christian view of hierarchies in which spirit is above and the darkness is below and in which we are moving through progress and inadvertently through evolution, upwards towards the light, that is, pushing this bloody, dead capitalist system onwards. I think, you know, just for a lot of Buddhists who disengage politically, and, you know, what they find, unfortunately, sterile discussions of Marxism or extreme left-wing politics, which have kind of run their course as well. And what we need, I think, is creative, constructive, pragmatic application of ideas to trying to build, you know, ideologies that, in my view should be based on an ecological view. That is, they should view the world as, yes, inseparability. There's another way of saying non-dualism. Inseparability from our organic 
lot from our organic situation. And I think, I think to me, you know, the, this is one of the things that where a lot of people lose hope when you discover that progress is actually a, a myth. I think progress and evolution do go together. But I think that a new vision of progress could be an ecological vision, not of a utopian environment in which, you know, uh, butterflies are flying around us. So I actually want to come back to a point. The, the point of ideology is this, okay? A lot of Buddhist practice presupposes that we can rid ourselves entirely of ideology. That is, we can be symbolically free. We can liberate ourselves entirely and exist in a world which is free of symbols, okay? And language, therefore. Okay, well, that's not possible. Sorry. It's a no-no. Now, can you, let's say, taste an experience of being in which you apparently, for brief periods, are outside of ideology? Well, you can argue that, and I think, you know, you could argue that that's possible, but I did say moments, okay? I did say moments. Now, the fact is, while we were embodied linguistic thinking beings who engage with other beings, we are always within some form of ideology, and this is one of the great contributions that Tom Pepper articulated so well. And I think the point is that we actually have to choose or build or reconstruct new ideologies or better ideologies that allow us to coexist more effectively as human beings and reduce suffering. Now, David Lloyd would suggest that we have to build an ideology which reduces the three forms of institutionalized suffering. And I would suggest that Buddhism doesn't have the answer. I would suggest that Christianity is redundant in its concept of what the answer to that should be because it's about salvation in the afterlife. I actually think we probably need to reconstruct a modern form, a modern uh, embodied organic ecological ideology within which some concepts from Buddhism would play their part. For example, non-dualism, uh, an understanding of the role of suffering in the individual and the collective, and construct, let's say, um, not a hierarchy, but a, but a plane along which we coexist with all other animate and inanimate beings on this planet, and in which progress and evolution don't drive a, a you know, never-ending, all-consuming capitalist economic system, but the desire within individuals and collectives to go for excellence in how we interrelate and relate to our world in order to reduce suffering and ignorance, and produce excellence and creativity. Stuart, we're solving the world's problems here on the Imperfect Buddhist Podcast. Oh, you, did such a, you did such a good job there. It was, it's... While I'm while I'm listening to you talk, it's making me reflect on the the enormity, the true enormity of the situation that we're in. The enormity of the subject is, is overwhelming, and you know I can understand, I can totally understand why people don't engage outside of Buddhism. I can totally understand why people don't because they've got careers, they don't have jobs anymore. They've got careers, they've got the commute, you know, they've got families, busy families to deal with. They've got finances and all of the everything there's so much to deal with and it's just more 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 faster 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 all the time so i can totally understand why people burn out and they just don't look outside the tv or they don't look outside of the bubble that they're in but we really do need to and i don't think this i've written this down for buddhism to be effective and engaged but i think it's really it applies to it doesn't matter it's i don't think it's a buddhist issue for me this isn't a buddhist issue this is a human issue but for Buddhists to become effective and engaged, that they need to become, at the very least, educated, informed, relevant and organised. Organised as people, but also organised as a collective. And relevant as a collective, because if they're not relevant as a collective, they're not doing a goddamn thing that's worth doing. They need to start interacting, liaising and engaging with other groups outside of themselves. 
it needs to look outside of Buddhism proper to find supportive peers and instigative collaborators. So two potential collaborators could be, for example, the hacktivist collective Anonymous and also Occupy, or you, you, as you refer to them, Matthew, Occupy Wall Street, who are part of the global justice movement. And that really, you know, you kind of need to get off the cushion, get out of the house and down onto the streets. And pick up a brick on your way. Pick oh. up a brick, yeah. Or not, a Molotov no, not, not, a Molotov, not a Molotov cocktail, a brick. The benefits of being engaged are learning, growth, evolution, with a key parameter of being effective outside of traditional Buddhism's closed system or systems, and potentially starting the kickoff process for Buddhism unlocking its inherent potential, which is which it does have. I mean, the reason we're doing the podcast is because it does. And if you're listening, you understand that. Yeah, yeah. I like the fact that you're rounding this up with a list of can-do statements. Yes. <laughs> you've got to have a proactive hey man it's the new year you've got to come up with a new yeah, year's resolution add those right. to your resolution list that's what that's it's right. for that's what that's we right. that's what we do you know pragmatic practical takeaway solutions <laughs> Take away. <laughs> you can apply to your life right now so wow, we're winners we're winners <laughs> we are winners Matthew <laughs> <laughs> so should all Buddhists be expected to engage and solid reasons for social action so you were saying, Matthew, you were you were starting to round down, and I want to I want to link this onto a few things. So, solid reasons for social action: you've got the plutocracy, corporatocracy, politics, economics, and suppressive social systems on one. You've got the American industrial military complex and war profiteering, which is a global problem. We have in the U.S. and in the U.K. I don't know what the European equivalent is, but we have the NSA, GCHQ and retroactive prosecution and manipulation of data, that's a problem. That is a problem. We also have big pharma and drug companies. That's another one. Um, environmental issues included, but not limited to the meat and dairy industry, which is a big problem. If you haven't seen Cowspiracy, this is, I'm going to push that. Check it out. It's worth watching. We have human and animal rights problems, and I totally recommend The Empire Files. That's, that's what I'm linking that to. That's on YouTube by Abby Martin. Very worth a watch. So, closing thoughts, Matthew, Buddhists should be willing to be aware and educated on important issues. There has to be a place for open and honest investigative journalism with the role of self-education being its part of its primary role and objective. And the dialogue and open discourse needs to be held, you know, I haven't got that in bold and underlined, but I think it needs to be based upon our discussion, needs to be held in local, central and international centers, because this is not a Buddhist problem. This is a human problem. This is how do we start to make a difference? How do we start? And it doesn't have to be political. It just needs to be in, in the sense of raising awareness of the problem. You know, we're not talking about going out and, you know, starting riots. We're talking about how do you how do you start to make your life a more meaningful reflection of your practice? The suggestion that we, we chatted about before would probably actually be quite a nice place for an individual or a sangha to begin with. What's that? Tell me, tell me. The idea of taking like a political statement or a concept, for example, the one I made about the neoliberal self. Mm -hmm. And using it as a reflective, and sitting a reflective with meditation or a koan. Exactly. Yeah. Sitting with it, opening to it, allowing it to penetrate your being, see where the discomfort arises, the self-defense, the aggression, the pacifying, pacifying of it. Sit with that and then, you know, share within the group afterwards in a narrative that's not based on the individual. Or rather, it starts with the individual. This is what I experienced. How is this a reflection of the collective? You know, and then sit with it. What's the alternative? 
what's the alternative? What are the available alternatives? Because I mean, this is this is the one thing I think again that that, that meditation practice as a set of disciplines for training the mind and for um, developing a more stoic or more stable inner environment, so you can actually deal with the external world without covering it up, without fabricating what's going on, and without just reacting to it. Because this is the other problem. I think you know people can jump from the left to the right politically. They can jump into extreme activism. Um, you see it with these social justice warriors at universities, specifically in the United States, who, you know, they leave mummy oh, and daddy behind. Trigger warning, Matthew, trigger warning. They go to the university and they think it should be a home away from home. Well, fuck you. No, it shouldn't. Now, I'm pleased. I mean, some of the issues these young adults get extremely reactive towards, some of the themes they actually re- react to, because they don't respond, they react. No, some of the themes are actually okay. But their their reactivity is narcissistic, it's immature, and it's not well thought through. And they're creating a political climate within universities, not just in America, spreading to the UK too, which is extremely dangerous in my view. It's basically suppressing dissent from their own dominant victimhood, victim identity, and so forth. But again, I don't want to go down that road. The point it kills, being... It could, basically, it kills the dialogue, doesn't it? It kills free speech, which is the thing they really have a problem with. But, you know, this is one of those dichotomies where whenever you go to an extreme, you often end up recreating the suppression that you are reacting to in the first place. Anyway, let's not go down that road. The point no, being... No, that's interesting. That's interesting. And what you're saying, what you're saying there is um, I'd, like to, I'd like to reflect back on my own... Go on then. My own um, part of my own growth experience as I've as, as I've grown as a person and I've, you know I've grown quite a lot and there's still more to do there always is one of the things I found interesting is that my understanding of meditation when I started meditation practice was one thing and then when I got engaged with martial arts and physical movement it changed my understanding completely changed based upon another discipline based upon bringing in another discipline and I think that that analogy plays a key role in what we're talking about here. You know, I think that, that that changes. When you start to add other information, other knowledge, another understanding and expertise from other areas of what's going on in the world, what's going on within the social dynamic of whether that happens to be at a university, of whether that happens to be in your own life, whether that happens to be within the workplace, or whether that happens to be with what issue do you engage with, economic, political, environmental, whatever... You know, I I think that, that that happens when you start to bring in the additional information, the additional knowledge, and the expertise of people who have really done the work, and you bring that into your practice, like you did with that very untraditional piece that you read out, Matthew. I think that that has to happen. I don't think that we can. I don't think we can afford to live in a closed system anymore. Going beyond reactivity. Yeah, and that. <laughs> okay, so let's round things off. We've said a lot. We managed to make a potentially boring discussion a fun and interesting one, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, whiskey and beer aside, which always helps the conversation flow. Our next episode will be an interview with Sean Barton or Sean Bartone, and we'll see what Sean has to add to the discourse that we've had. Um, We'll try and get him to give this a proper listen to before he comes on so he can respond as well. Not react, Stuart, not react, no but respond to some of the points we've made. If anybody's got any points to make on this topic, feel free to go to our SoundCloud page or our Facebook page. We've got a Facebook page. It actually gets a lot of visitors, Stuart, 
a lot because I get all the statistics for it. But people seem very reticent to actually make any comments. Really? Yeah, it's the same for my radio program, you know, where I do this English language radio program in Italy. A lot of people come and check it out, but they don't make comments. And that's kind of what I'd like. So, again, this is an invitation. People to come and have a look and not make comments. (laughs) No, I like to make comments. (laughs) What would be cool is if people actually expanded or built on some of the ideas that we shared. Maybe you're doing it already, this idea of contemplation, meditation, uh, or going beyond the individual within their practice, but not to the universal. I think, actually, that's a discourse that's not taking place in contemporary Western Buddhism. And maybe you and I could actually, as I said, I wasn't kidding when I I said I actually think we did something genuinely useful this time around. I think we've started something that doesn't exist out there. Mm. Or if it does, it's so private that it's meaningless. That it's just not in the public domain. And I think we're going to push that out there. Maybe we're the first. Maybe we're we're paving the way, Stuart, pirates that we are. So anybody out there who wants to try that out and reflect and share – Go for it. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and if actually, if people got onto this and they started doing some good work with this type of practice, I'd be happy to write up a blog piece on it afterwards, summarizing some of the practices and putting forward more suggestions. How does that sound, Stuart? That sounds pretty darn cool. The profundity of your words bring up a Christmas, bring up a joke for me, which is why are pirates so scary? Go on. Because they are. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you, Stuart. More happy Christmas, everybody. Happy New Year.